0: Recorded live at the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is Uncle Dan's Story Hour, featuring author and screenwriter Dan Wakefield, a master of the word, and host Will Higgins from the Indy Star. Uncle Dan's Story Hour is brought to you by Beer Brewery, with pints, growlers, and conversation at their taproom just west of Benford Boulevard on 65th Street.
1: Welcome, welcome to the excellent Red Key Tavern on beautiful College Avenue in the 5200 block in the heart of Sobro. I'm Will Higgins with Indy Star and tonight on the Story Hour, a series of very special and very weird stories from Uncle Dan's Hollywood years. His time in Hollywood, (laughs) it spanned the 1970s and involved two major motion pictures, a critically acclaimed television series, and some serious and rather wild, in the 1970s, sense of the word, farting around. (laughs) So we're going to start with the farting around. Uncle Dan, when did you go to Hollywood, and why did you do it?
2: Uh, I went in January of 1971 as a reward to myself. I had, well, going all the way had come out and uh, done very well, and this was my reward.
1: What kind of money did you make from that, Uncle D?
2: Well, we won't get into gory details, but it was enough to buy a townhouse on Beacon Hill, which if I had kept, would now be worth $12 million. Oh, my goodness. Ouch. But just like my beach condo in South Beach, I didn't keep it. I don't got
1: it. Well, that's good, then. If you had kept it and had $12 million, you might not be here with us
2: tonight. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Very profound, Will.
1: So, so you went um, to uh, Hollywood. You had you had, had the success with this novel, your first novel. And uh what were you thinking? You headed out west and and what did you have something planned, something in mind?
2: Well, I being a big Protestant ethic guy, I knew I had to you know, have a job or something to do. So I had optioned a novella to write a screenplay of. That was my sensible work. It wasn't totally serious work, but it was enough to give me an excuse for being there and and have something to do. And I did write a screenplay. It was a novella called Dump Gull by a very underrated writer named Fanny Howe, who's now a poet. And uh, one of my favorite lines of her, two of my favorite lines of the world come from her books, uh, which unfortunately are not well-known novels, but they're great. And one of them is, uh, if you live long enough, everything will happen to you. And (laughs) I think of that line every day.
1: Anyway. But but there was a lot more going on in the year. was 1971. You moved out there in January. And uh, so what what were your days like? And, And also, more to the point, your nights.
2: Well... I was living at the Chateau Marmont, which is a legendary place in Hollywood, right on Hollywood Boulevard, really beautiful, old 1920s Chateau, and about the second week I was there, some friends of mine who worked in the music business introduced me to a woman named Eve Babbitt, and I ended up spending that year with her. I would uh, work on the script uh, during the day at the Marmont, and then I'd walk about a mile and a half to her apartment, and uh, things would go from there. (laughs) And she is uh, an amazing, wonderful person. When I met her, she was an artist, and she was doing collages. A lot of them were covers for the LA Times Magazine, And also she did some uh, really great record album covers, one famous one for Buffalo Springfield. And she did a lot of these by, she had an old box camera, like a brownie camera, and she would just take pictures with that. And they came out sort of looking old-fashioned and with that brownish tint. And anyway, I did not know she was going to become a writer, or I would probably not have continued. But uh, but this
1: happened. this is an extraordinary person who isn't famous, but is almost famous. And um, I I read a profile in uh, Vanity Fair of her, a 2014 profile, and she had profound influences on uh, a number of famous people, including Steve Martin. It was Eve Babbitt who convinced Steve Martin that he should wear the white suit.
2: Yes, she convinced a lot of people of a lot of things. Uh, But she became famous when she was 18 years old. Esquire magazine, which was always looking for interesting, unique, photograph opportunities they wanted a picture of Marcel Duchamp the famous painter he was in LA and they had the idea of having him in a suit and vest sitting at a table playing chess with a beautiful 18 year old nude woman and that was Eve so she went out over all the other 18-year-old nude women in LA, and uh, that was when she first became famous.
1: Well, can I can I just list the the men that she um, was involved with in, in, before you, according to um, according, according to, to Vanity, Vanity Fair. Fair, Harrison Ford, Steve Martin, Glenn Frey of the Eagles, Stephen Stills. Must have been that was the Buffalo Springfield connection. Warren Zevon, and J D. Souther. So she and apparently she had a way these and she dated them before they were famous. But she could see something special in somebody, and and wanted to be with them. Isn't that right?
2: Well, you forgot Jim Morrison. Oh, Jim Morrison. Uh, but he of the had doors. already become yeah. famous. So yeah. anyway, she was a brilliant person. She is a brilliant person. Her artwork really was outstanding. I've always made it a rule not to get involved with a woman who is a writer because I know what can happen. She wasn't a writer when I met her. And a couple months later, she wrote what I think was her first story. And she gave it to me. I read it. And I thought it was really good. I said, listen, I'll, I'll send it to my agent, who was Knox Berger, who was the guy who discovered Kurt Vonnegut when he was fiction editor of uh, Collier's. And... Uh, so Knox read the story, and thinking he was being a very generous guy, he sent Eve back a two-page, a single-space letter with all the things she, he thought she could do to make the story better. Well, that night I went to Eve's, and I said, Well, what would you think of Knox's letter? And Eve had a way of putting her hands on her hips and making declarations, and she said... I hope that Knoxburger burns in hell. So, so then she sent the story to Rolling Stone and they published it. And that was the beginning of her writing career. So it was pretty amazing. And her first, I love the title, her first book was called Slow Days, Fast Company. And uh, And by the way, the New York Review of Books has been recently... Reissuing some of her books, including one called *Eve's Hollywood*, and also I think they're going to do *Slow Days, Fast Company*. So she was really pretty good at that. And uh, did
1: she? And she did some short stories, didn't she? Tell you once that she wrote a short story based
2: on uh, her year with you, Dan. Yeah, that was. (laughs) How did (laughs) that go? Very shocking. I well after our year together, I always we were. Remained friends, and, and I always, whenever I was in L.A., I would have lunch or dinner with her, and once out there, I think this was in the early 80s, we had lunch, and she said, oh, I've got a new book of stories coming out. I said, "Well, that's great. And she said, yeah, one of the stories is about us. I said, oh, my God. And she said, well, I brought a copy, so you can read it first, So I ran back to my hotel with fear and trembling. I started reading this story. I got about halfway through. I thought, well, you know, this really isn't so bad. It could have been a lot worse. And then the real shock was, as I went on reading, I thought, my god, this is what she thinks happened. And I realized that in any relationship, any two people are going to... have totally different experiences i mean really if if you that's just the way it is i mean i I would have interpreted a lot of things one way, and she interpreted them another way, so we each have our stories so but, what, but let what me I, ask you
1: do you th- if you had communicated better, do you think that you might have continued to be with her for more than the year
2: well let let's get to that later uh <laughs> Communicated better? I, uh, <laughs> That's a legitimate uh, any, question. Anyway, no, but the thing is, she, uh, she now you throw me off my track. <laughs> Sorry. Communicated Sorry. better really blows my mind. Uh, anyway, uh, but I, I want to say more about Eve. She was really a brilliant person, and she really introduced me to a lot of things, even literary things. And uh, <laughs> one, one night I went over there and she had this stack of books that she handed me and she said, read these. They're like Proust with recipes. And it was the works of M.F.K. Fisher, the greatest food writer uh, in America. And M.F.K. Fisher, if you haven't read it, I got to tell you, there's a, a book of hers now... Uh, I mean, she died about 15 years ago, but one of her books called The Gastronomical Me is just fabulous. It's really a great book. So, you know, all of these suggestions were terrific. And then once I went over there and she was watching a soap opera and says, Come on, you got to watch this. This is the best thing on television. And it was all my children. <laughs> and so she had me watch it and then she started, she explained to me, what all the characters were and how I should feel about him. She said, now that's Nick Davis. He's a real cad. You know, I got into it, and I, I, I got into that soap opera so much, I ended up writing a whole book about it, which was about Agnes Nixon, the creator of the soap opera, and it was called All Her Children. Anyway, so all of Eve's suggestions were pretty shrewd well,
1: can i just can we stay on eve for just a yeah. little so on oh, yeah. it, it, what so she was an amazing person like a muse or a siren or something like that so what was it what did she have and you know uh, this is a family show but what what did she bring to the table that was so alluring to uh, so many people so attractive
2: well she- uh, she was beautiful, and she was brilliant in a very offbeat way that was very entertaining. She was very opinionated, just like her reaction to Knox Berger's letter. Some people were really afraid of her. I, 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 one guy who was a, an editor out there uh, wouldn't go to a party if he knew she was going to be there because she had cut him down once. Anyway, she was a brilliant person. She was also a great cook. And I remember she would sometimes have these dinner parties in her little apartment on Formosa Avenue, and there weren't any chairs, so everybody had to sit on the floor. And and I remember once, one of her dinner parties, uh, her best friend Diane was going out with Chuck Berry, and he came to this party, and he had a movie camera, but this was 1971, so not many people had their own movie cameras. But the whole time, he never said a word. He just went around photographing everybody. So I don't know, it was a very strange experience. I think one of the important things is that uh, when Vanity Fair did that article, they called me up, and it was a very good article, and and the reporter uh, was very good. She was a very good writer. She asked me, you know, what I felt about that year. And I said, it was my favorite year, but I couldn't have lived through another one. <laughs> and that was the truth. And uh, I must say, because Eve was part of the music world and the music business during that year, and I'm not bragging about this, this is just what happened. That year, I took, at some time or other, every drug known to man, That I, at least to this man. And by the way, and people think of that with Hollywood, but it's really with the music business. You don't do drugs if you're working on a TV show or on a movie, because there's a lot at stake, and that's just not done.
1: Did the drugs help you in your writing or hurt you?
2: I wasn't writing that year. I <laughs> I was taking a break. <laughs> oh, I no, I did write that screenplay, but uh obviously it didn't capture a lot of attention. So it, it was it was amazing and uh and also because I trust I trusted her and I trusted, you know, she would tell me about each drug and uh <laughs> I remember first when when I first knew her and we'd go to these parties and everybody had cocaine and we would always have a little and after a while I said, Eve, it's getting embarrassing that we're taking everybody else's stuff, so you know, we should buy some. And she said, Okay, well I'll get some. So then I went over one night and she had said she bought our supply and says, Now listen, this is serious stuff. So we have to make a rule. I said, okay, you know all about it, you tell me. And she put her hands on her hip and said, we'll only use it when we really want it. <laughs> so that turned out to be about all the time. Uh, anyway, see, the lucky thing was, to leap ahead. The lucky thing was that in the end of that year, I had already accepted a thing to go teach at the uh, University of Iowa, the famous writer's workshop. So that that just ended all the drug stuff. And, uh, you know, it was wonderful. I mean, I suddenly, it was the most extreme change, you know, from Hollywood to Iowa City. <laughs> yeah. It was great. I mean, it rescued me. Yeah, it's Iowa a, City
1: came along just in time. Yeah, just in
2: like. the nick of time. Not, yeah. It's like the Lone Ranger, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but so, uh, are you um, are you in touch with Eve? Well, I have to tell you, uh, a real tragedy occurred to her sometime in the 80s. She was wearing. Uh, Skirt that was popular at the time. It was made. It was made in India, and it was a material that turned out to be flammable. And she was smoking a cigarette and dropped an ash, and her whole body was burned, and it was incredibly painful. But she is a very strong and very courageous person, and she came out of it. And uh, her her beautiful face was not harmed or touched, but. It, she was in the hospital for like three months, I think, and very, very painful. I think now there's even talk of uh, doing a TV series based on her. Fantastic. Yeah. No, it was it was a great time. I remember also just seeing the the music business. It was so lavish. I mean, compared to movie business, like the movie business was sort of small time. I mean, I remember going to a new record album party, and it was on some huge tent on a hillside. And you walked into this thing, and there were young women in harem costumes uh, carrying gold trays which had on them neatly rolled joints and then there was tables with every food you can imagine i mean it was just lush it was an amazing scene but i'm sure iowa city was lovely it was it was great it was very family-like and by the way it was very friendly and you know people invited you over they would just say hey we're cooking a turkey come on over and, uh,
1: but a few years later, though, you, so you, you leave L.A. in, in 70, at the end of 71, you go yeah. to Iowa, then, you, then you're writing some more. And then, but then you go back to Hollywood in the late 70s. A guy calls you out of the blue from 20th Century Fox, likes the way you write about young people, having read Going All the Way, and says, come on out and be well, in television.
2: Well, yeah, I was living peacefully in Boston. And you know, it's it's like wh- when somebody calls up and says, if you answer this question, you'll get a lifetime enrollment in the Arthur Murray dance studio. And this guy calls me up and said, would you like to write a television script? And I said, sure, I like. You know, I had no idea this would ever lead to anything. And uh, he said, well, I like the way you write about young people. And there's a guy at NBC who wants. Uh, somebody to develop a series about a boy growing up in America. So he said, the, the man talking to me, and by the way, 20th Century Fox, we're talking about the TV production company. It had nothing to do with what we now know as Fox Television. They, and they were developing some good stuff that year, including The Paper Chase, which was a, a great uh, television series. But anyway, I first... Went to New York on the. David Sontag was the man with uh, 20th Century Fox. He was the head of their production. He was a young, brilliant guy. And he had me come to New York to have lunch with this NBC executive who was a very grumpy guy. And I later learned one of the reasons probably he was grumpy, he had. Uh, when he talked to Sontag, he said he wanted to do this thing about a boy growing up in America, and he'd really like to get J.D. Salinger. And uh, so instead of Salinger, he got me. So, you know, that, was, that would make you grumpy. But uh, anyway, uh, it, then the next thing, I thought, that's the end of that. And then David Sontag called up and said, well, now I want you to uh, come to L.A., and uh, we'll put you up at the Beverly Hills Hotel <laughs> in a cottage, and that was very big time. And in those days, when when you, uh, when you did anything connected with TV or the movies, if you are in the Writers Guild, everything was first class. So I was in Boston, and you'd take the 747s, which in those days, you know, the big hump on the top of the 747s was uh, a piano bar. Huh. And so you'd first go up there, and uh, as the plane took off, and you'd have a couple drinks, and somebody would be playing the piano. And then they they announced it was time for, uh, for lunch, and you'd go back down, and you'd have this four-course lunch with some very good wine, and then you'd have some... Uh, some brandy to top it off, and a big chocolate hot fudge sundae, and you'd sort of roll off the plane. And uh, it was really pretty amazing. So Sontag called up and said, well, we have a meeting tomorrow at NBC, the West Coast NBC office, and uh, I'll pick you up at seven o'clock. So I said, okay. And seven o'clock the next morning, I was hardly in any shape to do anything, but he picks me up in his sports car, and uh, NBC, to get to their headquarters, he had to go over the mountains, and we're, uh, you know, rocking along in the sports car, and David says to me, so, uh, have you worked out the story? I said, no, I thought that's what I was coming out here to do, that, that you and I would figure out what the story was. He says, no, no. He says we're going to this meeting at NBC to sell the story. <laughs> I said, well, we might as well turn back because there is no story. <laughs> and he said, don't worry about a thing. That was when I first learned about Hollywood. <laughs> There's no story. Don't worry about a thing. Uh, he said, well, it's about a boy growing up in America. Have you thought of the boy's name? And I said, well, yeah, I, I have this, my favorite relative is my uncle Jim and so I thought you know the boy would be named James. He says okay well what age did you think he'd be? I said well growing up I figured 15 would be good. He said that's it. I said what? He says, we'll call it James of 15. <laughs> I said well that's good but there's no story. He says don't worry about a thing. <laughs> so we we go out to this meeting If any of you have ever seen the movie uh, Network with Faye Dunaway, this meeting was like that movie. And a woman was running it just like Faye Dunaway. Anyway, so David and I go in. And first, it was almost like what you hear about these Japanese meetings where you first, you know, go through flowery introductions and bow and so on. And David was saying, "We're so lucky to have Dan come out uh, all the way from the east. It was like I was from Damascus or something."
3: <laughs> and
2: uh, you know, we're we're very fortunate to have him here. <laughs> And also, you know, he writes novels, but but he's sort of, he's deigned to come and think of even the possibility of (laughs) luring himself to write a television script. Oh my God, they said, we're so grateful, we're so glad that you came out. So finally, after all this back and forth, the woman running the meeting says, so what's the story? So I looked down at the floor, <laughs> and David says, you know, we could bore you with a lot of <laughs> standard, uh, you know, the regulars, TVs, ideas for series scripts. But this, this, this idea, this is so special, this is so unique, so original, that we're just going to tell you the title." And if, you know, you either get it or not. If you don't get it, that's okay. We'll go to ABC uh, later this afternoon. <laughs> so they say, oh, my God. What is it? What is it? What's the time? He says, we call it James at 15. They go, oh, my God. This is incredible. Wow. And a woman gets up and starts pacing around and says, but what if it runs a second year? We call it James at 16. Oh, my God. Well, uh, so finally, uh, we go out of that meeting, and I said to David, what happened? And he said, you have to go home and write a television script. (laughs) I said, I've never even seen a television script. And then he gave me the one good piece of advice I ever got in Hollywood. He said, just go home. And write the best story you can. And I did. Excellent. I especially wanted Sophie to play this particular song in salute to my Hollywood days.
3: (laughs) Da <laughs> da
1: Thank you. We are, back with, we are back with Uncle Dan's story hour, the Hollywood edition, but, uh, and we'll continue talking about Dan's time out west. So now uh, we return you to Hollywood in the 1970s where our Uncle Dan has been asked, has been charged, is being paid to write a television show, something that he's never done, but Damned if it doesn't go really, really well. I'll read you a couple of reviews. The show is called James at 15. The Associated Press said, It makes up for all the drivel we've had to put up with, such as Sons and Daughters and Hollywood High. And Tom Shales said, that James at 15 was the most respectable new entertainment series of the season. Consistently, it communicates something about the state of being young rather than just communicating that it wishes to lure young viewers. And if it romanticizes adolescence through the weekly trials and triumphs of its teenage hero, at least it does so in a more ambitious, inquisitive, and authentic way. So, this show is great, and Dan cooked it up and was writing on it. It must have been a good time to be you, Dan.
2: Well, it was very lucky because this guy, David Sontag, who first contacted me, he said, do you want to write a television show? He put together a great group. He got a producer and a director who the three of us just hit it off, and that makes everything work. The producer was Martin Manulis, who had started out in the early days of television producing Dobie Gillis. And uh, then he went on, when he came to us, he had just spent two years as head of the American Film Institute, which is a very distinguished uh, position. And then the director was Joe Hardy, who had just come from directing the musical Charlie Brown on Broadway, and the three of us it just clicked, and uh, it was a wonderful team. And seeing the pilot, uh, that which was, became a two-hour movie, what happened, I was first commissioned to do one hour, but Sontag said, uh, listen, write it so that the end of that hour, if they like it a lot, the end of that hour could lead to a second hour, and then we could have a TV movie, which would be the beginning of the show. So that's what I did, and the, the pilot, that TV movie, uh, the pilot of James at 15 was shown on Labor Day of 1977. It was the number one rated show uh, of, the, of that week, and it was just a great experience, and boy, I gotta tell you, there's nothing like seeing your words acted on television, I mean, that's a whole other level of uh, thrilling experience. And I remember I was watching the pilot with my friends and with Martin and Joe. And when the commercials came on, I remember there was a commercial for vitamins. And I was so fired up. I was saying, eat those vitamins. (laughs) You know, everything. I mean, it was just incredible and uh, a, a great beginning. And when you're in... A television series you're working morning through night and it's it's like being on a great team it's like you know it, it's just and you're all involved in something you believe in and you like uh unfortunately we did not know how to play politics with the network and uh and martin manuel is a very distinguished guy and he just couldn't put up with some of the dodos at uh, the network. I remember we had an early meeting before the show even started, and uh, James at 15, his father, I had made him a college professor, so one of the NBC guys says, well, I don't know. I I think that's a little too high class for for the viewers. Uh, uh, Maybe they wouldn't identify with a college professor. So Martin gets up in the face says, okay, all right, we're making him a garbage man. Dan, get that down, garbage man. So they say, no, 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 we don't mean that. So anyway, so he remains a college professor. But that was our way of playing politics with the network. So anyway, uh, it was, it was a, a, a great thrill, and everybody was into it. And, Were um, you writing
1: the stories every week as it went, or did you plot this out in advance? No, it like, was
2: all every week, what's next. And, uh, and I was writing with, we had one other staff writer. Today, TV shows have 35 writers. We had two, and then freelancers would come in and pitch us ideas, and that was a very uh, tense thing because we had to worry about, You know, a lot of ideas for high school guys are all the same. You know, uh, okay, he has a crush on his teacher, uh, or he gets mad at one of his friends. Well, if somebody pitched the idea, and then we did a story like that, they'd say, oh, you stole my idea. So we're incredibly tense about, you know, making sure what we're saying, what everybody's saying. What we were told was we were commissioned for 11 shows. And then a decision would be made of whether we're picked up for another nine shows, which would constitute a full season. So that's like a triumph. You did a a season of a show. One of the first Hollywood jarring, non sequitur, awful things was we were originally told we're going to be on Sunday night at 7 o'clock. Which is, so it's going to be a family show. Young people could watch the right hour, right time. And our competition would have been the $6 million man. And he was already in bad shape. He, he needed new arms and legs and everything else. But uh, so we're all, this is all thrilling. And then one day I go into the office. Somebody says, hey, did you hear we're going to be on Thursday night at 9? I said, no, that's impossible. I said, but where, that, that's all wrong. Where'd you hear that rumor? He said, I read it in Variety today. So, oh my God. Suddenly we're on Thursday night at nine. So it's a different audience. Plus, our competition is now Hawaii Five O and Barney Miller, which are very established shows and good shows. But we usually came in second. We we did very respectively in the ratings. A group called Action for Children's Television loved us. And, you know, we, we were doing good stuff. Did
1: you write different for Thursday night at 9 than you were for at Sunday night at 7?
2: No, we just, no, we, we did what we were going to do and they had to like it or not one of the one of the challenges was that uh, you didn't know what was coming next. And also, NBC was that season doing something called stunting, which meant that after three of your series shows, they'd have a a magic show instead of James of Fifteen. So then you'd have to sort of get the audience all back again, and then they'd have a musical or something. And it really was hard to keep, to sustain the series. But we did have a lot of loyal followers. And later, the show Dawson's Creek was sort of modeled on us. And that's what everybody remembers now. And nobody remembers poor old James. It, <laughs> was, it was good. But at any rate, so when the time comes, uh, we hear, yes, the show's being picked up. NBC wants uh, wants to, to continue but part of the deal was they wanted to fire the producer and director and that was like the heart of the show and it was just because they were mad at him because they challenged them all the time and so it, it was that was when I knew things were going downhill fast so then also that remember that grumpy guy in New York from NBC he comes out to LA and we have a meeting And he says, uh, okay, I'm going to dictate what the next three shows will be. So I'm there with my pencil and paper. This is before the era of tablets. And in fact, I was there with my quill pen. (laughs) And he said, okay, the first show I want you to do is James will turn 16 and lose his virginity. In the second show... James will fear that he's contracted a sexual disease, a venereal disease, and in the third show, James gets his driver's license. So, well, let's see, is this an arc of life or something? <laughs> anyway, so I said, okay, I want to write the one where he loses his virginity. First of all, if it had been up to me and the original producer-director, James wouldn't have... Got laid till he was 32. But anyway, <laughs> so it was quite a shock. So we're working out this show. So he said that, but I said the, and I said to this guy I had a programming. I said, I have to know we can speak honestly about birth control because James is supposed to be a role model, and they had already taken out of the pilot a very vague reference to birth control and the the reference was so vague it was that James had a friend who he says listen are you going to still keep carrying around that thing in your wallet you always carry around and never use and anyway uh they cut that out so I knew it was going to be trouble with the sensors and you know the sensor's which was called the Board of Standards and Practices. That's a different department than programming. So programming can say, oh yeah, do everything you want, but I knew the censors were gonna have other ideas. So I figured a totally ingenious way to do it. I figured before James goes to bed with the girl, he says, wait a minute, are you gonna be responsible or uh, do I have to be responsible? And so the, the, the two of them go back and forth with this, who's gonna be responsible, and it's obvious that it's about birth control. Is he gonna be responsible or she responsible? Well, I swear to God, the censor sent back the script, said we could not use the word responsible in, <laughs> in that context. I thought, Orwell, that should be living at this hour. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so, so at that point, I, I could see the way things are going. I said, And I, I quit the show because I, I said, you know, I don't want to be associated with this thing, which is not going to tell the truth, which is going to be misleading for young people thinking they can just go do whatever they want sexually, and there's no consequences, except maybe getting a venereal disease. And So did they do the show? Did he lose his virginity? This yes, team? he did. He did, and he was not responsible. <laughs> uh, then, the, to me, the great irony was, because NBC was afraid, if we even had this veiled reference to it, the Catholic Church would come down on us, all kind of parents would protest and go crazy and pick at NBC. Well, that was December of 1977. In March of 1978, CBS did a TV movie based on the Judy Bloom novel Forever, in which a young woman goes to a birth control clinic and gets a diaphragm. This is before the pill. So anyway but so she does it and you know what nothing happens nobody protested evidently the pope didn't see the show and what (laughs) anyway uh it's all part of that craziness and of course now you can say anything you want and stand on your head naked and whatever (laughs) but uh that's that's what happened in those days
1: so um that um so that brought a uh so, you were sick of TV at that point? You were. Well, you no, to go I still
2: back. thought I had the bug and I wanted to do more. And uh, so I stayed on another year or so. I wrote scripts for three, I was commissioned to do three different movies of the week. Only one got made. That was the one where I teamed up with the guy, Joe Hardy, who'd been the director of James. And we co-produced a CBS movie of the week that starred uh, Lynn Redgrave and Brian Dennehy. And that was really fun, except that it was based on a a novel, a little known but wonderful novel that I know was written by somebody I knew. The novel was called Bliss. And it's about a school teacher, an unmarried school teacher who has an affair with the janitor of the school? It was a lovely little story, and so we loved the idea. Bliss, we thought, it was a great title and meant, you know, bliss and happiness and excitement and so on. Well, uh, the network this time it's CBS uh, tests the title by going out to Hollywood Boulevard and interviewing ten passers-by. They could have been high as a kite or whatever. But anyway, (laughs) and so they said, well, bliss doesn't test well. People associate it with peace and quiet and all that, and so it's not a good title. So they changed the title to The Seduction of Miss Leona. So it sounds like a Civil War hoop skirt drama. And we were all embarrassed and wanted to crawl under the table. But I tell you, looking back, the script was not that great. I mean, sometimes scripts seem great in writing, but I'll never forget, we showed the first cut to... We had a an executive producer who was a TV veteran, a very bright guy named Edgar Sherrick. So me and Joe and a couple of the people working out, we, we just showed it to Sherrick. Well, the first act is always the longest act of a TV show because before the commercials, because you want to make sure people are going to watch after the commercial. So it's supposed to end very dramatically. So... This the janitor of the school and the teacher. He's going to have the affair with. They still haven't. Nothing's happened between. Them. I think he, she's given him some Toll House cookies, but that's a, and Four so pint. so he's come to her house to do some repairs, and he's climbing up on a ladder to fix the roof, and she hands him a hammer, and as she hands him a the hammer, their hands meet, and and clutch. And we hear this voice in this darkened screening room, Edgar Sherrick says, well, the cat's out of the bag now. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh Christ. <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyway, it was on, it was okay, and Lynn Redgrave was wonderful, and Dennehy was wonderful, and all that. So, And then after that, uh, uh, the next thing I did didn't get made. And, you know, that's, that's par for the course in Hollywood. One out of three is great, but I'm used to writing books where you write something and it gets published. So I really didn't like this. And also I'm getting more and more nervous and wrought up and worried. And for the first time in my life, I went to a doctor. Uh, I said, you know, I have this funny feeling my heart's beating too fast. Maybe I'm a hypochondriac. So the guy gives me a physical, and he says, Well, you're right. Your resting pulse is 120, so that's twice normal. So he says, Tell me, are you in the entertainment business? (laughs) I said, Gee, how did you know? So I at least was smart enough to take the next flight back to Boston. And I went back to Boston, and I luckily found this great doctor who had just started a cardiac rehab program and introduced me to two words I had never included in my vocabulary, diet and exercise. <laughs> and so I lost 25 pounds and uh, got my heart down to heartbeat down to 80, and then he said, would you be willing to go a month without a drink? And I had never done that in my adult life, but I said, well, okay, everything you told me worked, so I'll do it. And I did that, and lo and behold, my pulse was 60, and that night, Christmas Eve, I went to King's Chapel, which became my great church. Anyway, and then that's a whole other, more uplifting story. Well...
1: I guess right away, pretty soon after you got back to Boston, you started writing the book that became Starting Over, which led you back to Hollywood. Incredible cast of actors and directors were involved in this movie. It was in 79, came out. It starred Burt Reynolds, who was at the height of his power in 1979, Jill Clayburgh and Candace Bergen. And it was directed by Alan Pakula, who had directed To Kill a Mockingbird and All the President's Men. Marvin Hamlish did the music. These are big names from the 70s, in case you're young. And Jill Clayburgh was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress for this movie. And Candace Bergen was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. But I have to tell you, Dorothy and I watched this movie just the other night, and it's just awful.
2: Yes, I I agree. I couldn't believe it. I'm proud to say I had nothing to do with the movie. Uh, In fact, this is the standard experience of writers whose books are bought for the movie. As soon as I signed the option agreement, the guy, James Brooks, who later became famous doing all kinds of stuff, but as soon as I signed it, uh, he wouldn't speak to me anymore. I was totally shut out of the whole thing. I, I was later, when I was here at the First Spirit in Place with Updike and Vonnegut, Updike had just had the Witches of East Week come out based on his novel, and he had the same experience as I did. He said, you know, when the movie came out, he, he had to buy a ticket for him and his wife to go see it. They did, And he said the worst thing was they filmed the movie... 20 miles from where he lived and they never invited him to the set. He said, I would have liked to meet Cher. And (laughs) uh, when they went to see the movie, after about 20 minutes, his wife whispered to him, John, you should take your name off this. And he said, that's not the way it works there. So, I really think the best writer attitude of when your movie is like what Tom Wolfe said when bonfire the vanities was bought he got the the biggest price that you could get and he said that's their thing has nothing to do with me or my book and that's the only way you can look at it
1: i must say you can get uh starting over on netflix Oh, and don't
2: try, really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and uh, I have to tell you, who's in it is a very young Kevin Bacon. I think it's his first movie. And also, I think Daniel Stern is in it. I think he's in one of the classes that Burt Reynolds is teaching. I, I think anyway, that's him. Anyway,
2: and the movie had nothing to do with the novel. They Really. The only similar thing is somebody got a divorce. That's That's it. So it was really painful. To yeah, it was truth. painful for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> but then, out of the blue, I get my psychic redemption. Going all the way over the years it had been optioned five times. A movie never been made. People uh, wanted to set it in L.A. or Toronto because that would be cheaper. And one guy wanted to set it in the 80s, and which would have made no sense at all and so I figure well that's dead if it's option five times it's dead in Hollywood so I happened to be in LA for I don't know just visiting people and uh, a guy calls up said he and his partner wanted to talk to me about uh, doing a movie of going all the way and so they wanted to take me to lunch so I figure well I'll get a free lunch so uh, it was Mark Pellington, the director, and Tom Gorey, his partner. Both of these guys had just turned 30. And Mark, the director, said when he was in high school, he he determined that if he became a movie director, the first movie he ever wanted to do was Going All the Way. I said, how did you even know about it? Because you know, the, the novel came out in 1970. He said, well, my dad belonged to the Literary Guild, And it was a literary guild selection. So one day in high school, it's a rainy day, and I'm at home, and I'm looking for something to read, and I'm looking through my dad's books, and I see this going all the way. I see it had something to do with sex and young people, so I read it. And then he says, "Uh, you know those guys, Sonny and Gunner? I said, yeah. He says, I'm both those guys. Well, I knew he got it. So... uh, Anyway, they said, well, would you write this script on spec? I said, no, I'm not trying to get rich, but I just want the Writers Guild minimum. Anyway, they made the whole thing happen. It was, and again, just like with the, that I'd felt with the TV original guys, I just really hit it off with Mark and Tom, and it was like my redemption. They wanted to shoot the movie in Indianapolis, They wanted me uh, to write the script and it was all the things that a writer would want and I was involved in the whole process and the great Jane Rulon, who was head of the Indiana Film Commission. (laughs) The Indiana Film Commission was then abolished by Mitch Daniels. Uh, I think it was around the time he tried to ban... Uh, the people's history of the united states but anyway uh we filmed it here as some of you know and it was a great experience and we got accepted to the sundance film festival and went out there and we're wait that's like where you take your cow to sell at market we're waiting in great tension and one of the things i'll never forget we were thinking, well, what if what if we don't get bought for distribution, we're thinking about other ways to raise money, and Tom Gorai said, oh, my mom called, and she's willing to contribute the $20,000 reparation money she got from being in a Japanese-American detention camp during World War II. I said, Tom, if we did that, there's going to be no movie. I'll shoot myself. So anyway, but we did get bought by a distributor, and the movie did come out. It got really smashed in New York and uh, not a good review in the L.A. Times And for a cast that later became famous, but at that time they were all unknown. Ben Affleck. Uh, Jeremy Davies, Rachel Weiss, and I think they they all did a great job. I, I love the movie. It got wonderful reviews in the Midwest and in San Francisco, and Roger Ebert wrote the best review, and he said this movie was more like his own time of growing up than any movie had, he'd ever seen, and Siskel, his partner, said, well, I liked American Graffiti better. Well, you know, what? (laughs) Anyway, uh, I was very happy with with Ebert and a lot of the people who really appreciated it for what it was. And it was, I'll I'll always remember it uh, warmly and proudly. By the way,
1: it's been 20 years since that movie was made, and we're trying to figure out how to show it maybe later this summer in some special cool place maybe
2: outdoors i have heard from mark pellington and he said he would he'll try to come out and you know if we get permission he's going to ask the production company to get permission to show it and we'll let everybody know if that happens i hope it it does yeah it'd be
1: great maybe we could see it outdoors at dan wakefield park (laughs) (laughs) 61st and broadway it'd be a good spot for it bring your lawn chairs courtesy
2: um, of Pat Chastain. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs>
1: the, um, I think that's the show for tonight. I wanted to just say one thing though, and that is you can watch the James at 15 pilot on YouTube. It's like a it's a hour uh, program and it's very good and you can you can get that on YouTube.
2: But we and, but it's now, not the show because we want to end with our famous theme song at the end which Sophie thought is going to play, and uh, it's one of my favorite songs and, and dedicated to everybody, I'll Be Seeing You.
0: Uncle Dan's story hour was recorded live at the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana. For tickets and information on future Story Hour events, visit redkeytavern.com. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was made possible in part by the amazing Beer Brewery and faithful listeners like you. Special thanks to the neon sign for guiding the way to the Red Key. Writer Uncle Dan Wakefield, host Will Higgins from the Indy Star, creative consultant and senior lecturer at Indiana University, and writer producers Michael Fairwechter and Pat Chastain. And many thanks to the owners Jim, Dolly, and Leslie Settle and Violet Walker and the fantastic staff at the Red Key Tavern. Our amazing recording engineer for this episode was the masterful Joe Moran. Our graphic artist is the very talented Sarah Bushman. Our production manager is the very skilled Matt Pelzer. Good luck with the new baby, Matt. The WFI program director is the wonderful Roxanna Caldwell. Uncle Dan's story hour was created by Dan Wakefield and Michael Therwechter.